Hey there, folks. I've got more good news. It doesn't end. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. And then beyond that, his book is called Person of Interest. Who's the person of interest? Jesus of Nazareth. This is a very exciting, provocative, and unfortunately important book. Jay Warner Wallace, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. You know, if I had known, Eric, that I was going to release this book at the same time that Eric Metaxas is going to have a new book, I would have said, you know, let's wait till January. What what am I doing trying to release a book while you got a book out? I was thinking the same thing about my book. So here's what we have to do. (laughs) We have to tell people, if you don't buy both books, you're crazy. You're dividing a friendship. You're destroying the body. Okay. That's right. Now, look, seriously, this book... My book is not really about Jesus, actually. So my book is, is my, I set a low bar for my book, Is Atheism Dead? I just wanted to show, in a way, the scientific evidence for a creator. You don't have to say it's Jesus. You don't have to say, but, but to say there is no creator of any kind is, at this point, preposterous. I then talk about yep. biblical archaeology, which makes it really clear that the Bible is certainly no collection of folktales and it's probably totally historical, even though you can't prove that it's totally historical. And then I talk about atheism, but I do not go into what you go into in this book. So I think we could we could pitch it as co- their companion books. Like there if you, you read go. my book and you're like, huh, okay, so now yeah. I am thinking about this Jesus guy. Anything, uh, anything uh, I could read about that? Hey. Jay Warner Wallace has just come out with a book called Person of Interest. Seriously, this is an amazing book. I I don't want to do all the talking. So if you don't mind, tell my audience the the premise, because it is actually really fascinating what you have have done in this book, Person of Interest. Okay, so here's the weird approach I took. I I work cold cases, and a lot of the cases I get are what are called no-body murders or no-body missings, where somebody kills his wife or a wife kills her husband and then claims that they ran off, and they file a report, a missing persons report, and that's how we take the case. And then years go by. No one works the case. Okay, so wait. So you – you, just to be clear, some people know this, some people don't. You are a cold case detective, and you've been a cold case detective, a real cold case detective – for a long time, and you're bringing those skills to this issue. So I, I don't want go. to interrupt, but but just in yeah, case people yeah. think you're like blowing smoke, this is what you do. Well, I've done a bunch of these cases. They're actually on Dateline, and several of these are nobody uh, missing persons cases. And so what happens is is they get away with it for a while because there's there, no, nobody is ever discovered. Um, there's no crime scene ever photographed. It's taken as a missing persons report. I opened the case. I had one case, Eric, I kid you not, that 30 years after the crime was occur- occurred, um, she'd been missing for 30 years. Her family never once called our agency because the killer so uh, thoroughly convinced the family that she had just run off. Now, now, what do you do when you have no crime scene, no evidence from a crime scene, no, don't even have a body? How do you make a case like that? Well, I always tell people that if she vanished on that day because he murdered her, it's like a bomb went off on that day. But bombs are always preceded by fuses that burn slowly toward the detonation of the bomb. And afterwards, there is shrapnel all over the blast radius. So we'll make the case by simply examining the fuse and the fallout. So I thought, well, look, if if Jesus is who he said he was, and let's imagine a future world where every single New Testament document has been destroyed. There are no Bibles. There are no New Testaments. It turns out in that kind of uh, absent of crime scene, 
no New Testament, you could still determine the historicity and deity of Jesus from simply the fuse and fallout of history. That's what this book does. It takes a look at nothing other than just the history of unusual places that have Jesus's fingerprints all over them, like literature, art, music, education, science, and even non-Christian religions. It turns out you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from those aspects of culture in a way that maybe is surprising to people, because I'm not just going to show that he's had big impact. I'm talking about being able to reconstruct the story from those aspects of culture. Okay. And that's what we're doing in the so, book. So what you're doing, it's a beautiful thing. Um, you're using logic, the same logic we use, as you've said, in, uh, in, in crime detection. We want to we know. People want to know what happened. We demand justice. And in most cases, there is a way to get there, including in what you call or what is called cold cases. There's no body uh, what do we do? You know what we do, and you have applied your considerable skills to the uh, to the murder, the execution of Jesus of Nazareth. So, what do you, wh- what is in this book? I mean, there's so much in here. I was just looking through the illustrations. It's actually, fa- I would say, that makes it like a really fun read because there's so many different pieces of information. So, let let us uh, let us know what what is in here. Yeah, well, actually, there's over 400 illustrations in the book because that's just the way I think of things in front of a jury. And Zonervan was good enough to let me spend two years building the jury presentations. And then I wrote a book from those stage presentations. That's what that book is. So there's usually uh, every page has got some type of graphic element if it doesn't have a list. But here's the thing I think you'll find interesting. I I heard you recently being interviewed about your book uh, with with Sissy Graham, for example. And and we talk about the impact of of science and how science can demonstrate – well. I don't know if people realize that science, the history of science, is standing on the shoulders of Jesus of Nazareth and his followers. As a matter of fact, the fathers of the major disciplines in science, all of the major disciplines, from uh, cosmology, from, from chemistry, biology, all the way to quantum mechanics and computer sciences, it turns out the fathers of those major scientific disciplines are all Christ followers. Okay, now hang and on. They, hang on. That – what you just said, this is the classic thing, like you say that and we move on. Ladies and gentlemen, d- did you hear what Jay Warner Wallace just said? I touch on most of this, not all of what you said in my own book. This is huge news. This is huge news. Uh, and when you say Christ followers, I mean, I would go farther and say that most of them, these are the fathers of these various disciplines in science, were profound, devout Christians that's not the kind of thing most people think. Most people think well, science this? It, diverges it, from faith. Yes, and you know those people were so devout that they wrote in their personal letters and journals about Jesus of Nazareth. If all you had were the personal writings of the science fathers, you would get more information about Jesus than you get from the church fathers. Oh, and oh, I have oh, a list oh, of never all of that. that that's in amazing. The book. That's amazing. Seriously, that's pretty cool. Wow. Well, it is. And so that's why I'm saying you'd have to destroy more than the New Testament to get rid of Jesus. You'd have to destroy the entire history of science as we know it. I don't think anyone's teaching this to our young people. No that, one, no that one science is, is so dependent upon Christian worldview. As a matter of fact, it's been argued, and I think Dinesh D'Souza wrote this quite well, that Christendom in Europe is what causes the scientific revolution. That's true. Yeah. But then you hear, well, look, everyone in Europe in the 16th and 17th century was a Christian. That's not the point. There were more people outside. Outside of Europe, why didn't science explode in Asia? 
Why didn't the science explode in, in, in Persia? Or ancient Greece. Explode? I mean, look, there are many exactly. places that in some ways were more advanced than 16th and 17th century Europe. What is it about that time? Uh, and you're right. So many people have written about it. I was not aware of this until I was researching my own book. And it's one of these things that it's such huge news that we need to, to shout it from the rooftops because – most people just have some baked in idea that the, the opposite is true. So I'm glad that that's one of the things you go into. Well, how about this? In terms of education, now, I don't get people to realize that modern education, as you know, at the modern university, as you know, it, it came out of three universities planted by Christ followers at Bologna, Paris and Oxford. Those three universities gave birth to the 24 daughter universities from which the scientists in the scientific revolution emerged. This is entirely – here's what's great about it. If you were to research right now the top 15 universities in the world today, you would find they are all founded by Christ followers. The top 75 of the top 100 universities, in fact, were founded by Christ followers. Here's what's cool. If you were to visit those campuses, you would find that the original buildings in which they taught students still exist. And on those buildings, you will find the images of Jesus, the stained glass of Jesus, the inscriptions of, of scripture from Jesus. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus just from the campuses of the top 15 universities in the world today. If you wanted to erase Jesus from history, it would take more than just the science fathers. It would take more than the scriptures. You'd have to destroy the top 15 campuses because they actually have the images and story of Jesus embedded on their buildings. I mean, uh, wow, there's a lot here. The book is called Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. I, I have to confess that I was myself when I first in two of my books, I wrote about the, the resurrection, not in the new one, but I was myself genuinely astonished that you could use logic to effectively prove the case of the resurrection. I was sure that that had to be something you just take on faith, quote unquote. But a lot of these things are canards. They're just rumors. They're myths. They're terrible ideas. And when you start using logic, so I want to challenge people Dare to be logical. You, you'll get scared by what you find if you don't want to find Jesus. The book is Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. We'll be right back with J. Warner Wallace. Don't go away. Make like the Mr. Mumbles and you're a zero. Make like the Mr. Big, they dig up. Snow. Folks, I'm talking to Jay Warner Wallace, famous cold case detective who now applies his considerable skills as a cold case detective uh, to the person of Jesus. The title of the book is Person of Interest. What else uh, is in the book that uh, that we can talk about on this program? There's so much. I just don't know where to start. It's loaded with good stuff. 
Well, I can tell you the literature is one of those things we talk about in the fallout, right? We talk about how much impact Jesus has had. There's no other historical figure who has been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth. You can check this with the Library of Congress. You can just check it on a Google book search. I mean, you, you will find that the second place finisher is pretty far below Jesus of Nazareth. Not only that, just from the writings in the first 300 years, I don't think people realize that there are more non-Christian voices on ancient manuscripts in the first first 300 years of Christianity, then there are Christian voices speaking about Jesus of Nazareth. There's a sense in which not all you have are these Christian sources. Not true. Um, and so I've got a list in the book and an illustration of all of the non-Christian sources. That goes all the way from the non-canonical authors, all the way to Greek and Persian and Egyptian and, and Roman sources to even Jewish sources. Most of what they say about Jesus is not flattering, but they have to stand on the claims of the Gospels in order to criticize the Gospels. The same way that the rumor mill about Elvis and all of the books that have been written about Elvis end up affirming the basic life biography of Elvis. Like, for example, they might say, yeah, and Elvis on this date, he stay, stayed at a hotel in Memphis. And then they'll say, and then that during that time, he was sleeping with so-and-so. Well, the sleeping with so-and-so part is just rumor. But you have to affirm a fact first that he was in Memphis on that night, which is true. The same kind of thing happens with the ancient sources about Jesus. They'll, they'll change the claims. They will start a rumor. But they build those rumors on true claims so that you can reconstruct the story of Jesus from the common true claims of all of the rumors. And that's what's so great about the evidence for Jesus. You have to erase more than just the New Testament. You have to erase the history of early literature that's also written about Jesus. What this uh, reminds me of, I mean, when I uh, write my books and I wrote this recent book and in this book that you've written – you, if you're looking at things from a legal standpoint, not a scientific standpoint, but from legal evidence, you can prove the case. You can make a more than reasonable case that God exists, that Jesus uh, existed, that he rose from the dead. Most people, including people of faith, they're not aware of that. They think I have to, quote unquote, take it on faith as though faith means parking my brains at the door and it's just the opposite. If you park your brains at the door, you will not be a Christian or uh, a believer in the Bible because you kind of have to – at this point, let's put it this way. At this point, the evidence is so overwhelming that I think it's really troubling to people who are atheists or, or somehow anti-Christian, and they're forced – to look away, like the, the folks who refused to look through Galileo's <clears throat> telescope. Right. They said, yeah. I don't want to know, because if I look through there, it's going to influence me. Um, and so I dare people to read this book, Person of Interest, or my book is Atheism Dead. I, I dare you, because if you're interested in the truth, and everybody says, like, sure, I'm interested in the truth, but you can't prove it. Well, I, I dare you to look at the evidence because I think the reason you don't want to is because it's challenging something. It has to do with a person's will. They don't right. want to be troubled. So they think, I'm going to look away. I'm going to let it ride. I'm going to ignore it. Well, remember the standard is different, right? So the standard is not beyond a possible doubt for anything in the highest levels of criminal trials. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. What I mean is we tell jurors that I'm going to tell you up front, I, I'm not going to be able to answer every question. I still have open questions about cases. And in nobody missings, unless he confesses, I'm not going to be able to tell you how he did it, how he got rid of her body, how he moved her car. I had these open questions in a case. Now, we found him guilty. 
beyond a reasonable doubt. But there were still open questions that needed to be asked. Now, later he confessed to this and he gave us all that information. But at the time of the conviction, he hadn't yet. And so we have to be able to make a decision to render a verdict uh, legally based on the fact that you may still have open, unanswered questions. But that's beyond a possible doubt. That's not our standard. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, the same thing is going to be true for your faith in Jesus. Do I still have open questions, theological? Of course, we all do. The more you study theology, the more questions you're probably going to have. But you have enough evidence to make a, to render a verdict, to make a decision beyond a reasonable doubt. What t- often keeps us, and this is why we have a vor dire process of selecting jurors, is that we are trying to eliminate the jurors who hold presuppositional biases that will make them act either unfairly toward the prosecution or toward the defense. Both teams are trying to make sure we eliminate the far edges of the group that are presuppositionally biased against us. Well, you've got to realize when you're sharing the gospel with people, if you give it my book or you give Eric's book, you're going to find that there are people who hold those biases. And you cannot remove those by argument often. Those are the things that I typically will model Christ and pray about because it turns out that it's God who moves the heart toward the reasonable center that allows us to hear the gospel to begin with. But I think these kinds of books are important for those people who God is already moving and this need to know, need to have the barriers removed. Sometimes we've constructed false barriers against Jesus and against God's existence that books like this will help remove so the gospel can be heard again. And that's what we're doing in this kind of a project. I don't ever think that my genius in building a case is going to convince somebody. No, God's going to use this, though, after I help remove barriers between the people who read the book and the gospel itself. That's almost exactly how I put it when uh, somebody says, I'm going to give this book to this atheist, this hardcore. And I think, you know what? That may be casting your pearls before swine. You're you're wasting your money. They're not going to read it. They have a bias against it. If people are interested in the truth, that's another story. Uh, I'm talking to Jay Warner Wallace, the brand new book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. We'll be right back. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never Folks, brand new book. Looks like a great book to me. I don't say that lightly. Person of Interest is the book. Person of Interest by J. Warner Wallace. Uh, He is known as America's foremost cold case detective. Think about that. America's foremost cold case detective. Kind of a big deal. Uh, J. Warner Wallace, how did you get that title? Because there's a lot of cold case detectives out there. They are working it. They're working hard. Uh, who, who said that you were America's foremost cold case detective? Well, I'm sure they're actually, I mean, just to be a big deal in your own mind is sometimes where you start, right? So that's a lot of it. I think part of it also comes from how many times I appeared on Dateline, which is probably just by virtue of the fact that we're right down the road from NBC Universal here in Los Angeles County. But I think I have been on Dateline more than any other cold case detective. And so people start to think, well, yeah, you're the only one. No, there's tons of really good detectives out there who are probably even better than I am. But sometimes you just ends up being the one who's the most publicized. Okay, so you're the, really you're the you best. The known cold case <laughs> yeah, detective that's yeah um, if, if that okay. and you so. uh you've turned your attention as a cold case detective uh to the bible to jesus um 
And how is this book, Person of Interest, the new book, different from, from previous books? What do you do in this book? What do you try to do that you didn't do in the other books? Right. Well, I actually think this, there's no other book. I mean, everyone likes to think that, right? But I think there's actually no other book that does this. So here's what we're doing in this book. I've got another book called Cold Case Christian, where I'm looking at the Gospels themselves. Are they reliable eyewitness accounts related to Jesus? That's considering everything inside the crime scene called the New Testament. This book rejects that, says, no, what? Well, let's, let's pretend like all those have been destroyed. What would we know about Jesus outside the New Testament? And that's what this kind of book does. And I think what it does is it answers certain skeptical claims. Like, for example, one of the like, is Jesus just a copycat savior, another recreation of ancient mythologies? Well, I actually look at that as part of the fuse leading up to Jesus. There are a number, it's hundreds of ancient mythologies that have broad general uh, um, similarities to each other and to Jesus. But they're only broad. They're not specific. So these people, these are the common expectations of people who think about God. And although they, they they shape out differently, I might commonly expect that a supernatural being will enter into the world in a supernatural way. So these mythologies often show that God enters in a supernatural way, but they're all very different in how they enter in. Well, Jesus also enters into it in a supernatural way. It turns out that the 15 common expectations of ancient people groups in the thinking about God they only have about six to ten similarities in the ancient myths. No ancient myth has more than ten of these, and some have as few as six. But there's one person who shows up in history who actually embodies all 15 of the ancient expectations of people who believe in myths, and it's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, doesn't it make sense that God would meet those expectations, given that we're thinking about these as people designed in the image of God, who think about God, and then he shows up matching our expectations about God. Well, I mean, I would, Paul, I would go a step further or, or, or a step backwards and say that because God created us in his image, he created us with those expectations. We long for meaning. We long for love. We long to be known. We long for justice. We long for truth. We long for all these things. And, you know, you say, where do those longings come from? And why is it that they're met in Jesus? It's a curious thing. And so it is It is no surprise that all these various religions and, and mythologies, uh, they're kind of echoes of the gospel, even if they happened before the gospel. And uh, that's one of the things you talk about in the book. Yeah, as a matter of fact, what you're talking about, too, in your book, look, it turns out right now, if you pull humans on planet Earth, the vast majority, the vast, only about 7% of humans right now would say they're atheists or agnostics on the surface of the planet. Everyone else believes in some type of higher power. I even cite studies that have been done now in Ivy Lake schools by non-Christians, by non-theists, who will demonstrate that, yes, it turns out that our default position as children is not atheism. Our default position is some form of theism. Young kids look at the created world and they infer a designer from what they think they see as design in the world around them. This has now been said by some uh, uh, researchers that it's this kind of theism, this kind of idea of a higher power is bred in the bone. These are by people who are not themselves believers. Right. So this idea that we that we only teach our kids to believe in God is actually not true. They have a default position which is inclined toward believing in a higher power and these Common expectations, even of moderns, are met in their most robust form in the person of Jesus. It's part of that fuse that's burning up toward the – this is why Paul says on Mars Hill, hey, you folks are really religious. 
You believe in a lot of gods. I'm here to show you who the real God is. And he's basically revealing to them, as C.S. Lewis says, your myths come from the minds of your human poets. The Christian myth is from the mind of God grounded in what we call real things. And this word for myth is not Lewis saying it's a it's a lie. It's that this is the story that the narrative about God that actually is true compared to your myths and narratives about God that are untrue. And so that's what Jesus does. He appears and he meets the expectations of the expectors. Anytime the expected meets the expectations of the expector, you get a really good result. And so God shows up in a narrow window in which these mythologies are still being worshipped. And that window. I show in the book in one chapter is so narrow. This cultural fuse opens up a red zone window of opportunity from about 29 BC to about 70 AD. And guess who shows up in the middle of that window? That is that's a wild concept. Can you say say more about that, about that window? Right. So if you take the overlap of when all the mythologies are being worshipped, because they're not all worshipped forever. Osiris worship eventually stopped. But if you if you can capture a window in which all these mythologies are still actively being worshipped, so the expectations of people groups can be maximized in the person of Jesus, you get a window of several hundred years. If you overlap on that, the window of culture in the Roman Empire, which allows us a 200-year period of peace called the Pax Romana, in which now we have the roads and postal service and tolerance within the empire. Empire and a window of opportunity for the message of Jesus to travel, now the window becomes shorter. Then if you overlap the prophetic window of Daniel saying that the Messiah will come between the reconstruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, now you've got another overlap. Now you end up with a window that I kid you not, I show it in the book, is between 29 BC and 70 AD. I'm, Something has the opportunity to happen right there in yeah, that window folks, that will change the world. This is crazy stuff, folks. I dare you to look at this. I actually came to a similar conclusion, not as detailed in my own book, when I realized that Jesus arrives just as Jerusalem has been rebuilt. It's never been more spectacular. Boom, he shows up. He predicts it's going to be wiped out. 40 years later, it's wiped out. I mean, you think, who made that up? God, we'll be right back. And feathered canyons everywhere. I've looked at clouds that way. Oh, hello. I'm talking to Jay Warner Wallace. It's the Eric Metaxas Show. Go to my website, ericmetaxas.com. Sign up for the newsletter so we can send you all of these interviews because you want them and because you want to share them with your friends. Jay Warner Wallace, what should we talk about in our final moments together today? Well, I just want to encourage people that all of us have the ability to make a case for Jesus. This this is not something that's unusual. I mean, Scripture shows us this is the kind of case maker Jesus was. I mean, think about it. After the resurrection in Acts 1, it says that Jesus spent 40 additional days with the disciples, giving them many, and depending on the translation, convincing proofs. That's the Greek word we use for evidence. Now, Think about that for a second. He's just resurrected from the grave. Do you think I really need more evidence? Apparently, Jesus is going to give me 40 days more of evidence. Now, that's an evidential approach. So that even when John the Baptist has got doubts and sends his disciples, Jesus, uh, he wants to know. John wants to know, are you the one? Do you, look, if you're Jesus, are you a little bit upset with that? You're thinking to yourself, really, John, you're my cousin who baptized me, who saw the Spirit of God descend. Really, you have doubts now? You, you want to know? Tell you what, go back and tell John. 
what you just saw. And he cites the miracles he had worked in front of John's disciples. That's a very evidential approach. I think that what we're doing, Eric, is you and I are writing books that I think are important to the church, even right now at a time when the church doesn't know how important they are. There's an entire generation who wants to know not just what is true, but please tell me why you think it's true. Because it's, this, is, this is what the culture is doing. The culture is making claims about all kinds of things and saying they're based in evidence or based in science. Yet you religious folks, you want us to believe this stuff blindly? That was never the request of Jesus. Jesus, when testimony in the first century in the book of Acts is not your personal experience with Jesus or how he changed your life. Go read the book of Acts. It's the eyewitness accounts of their resurrection. Direct evidence was offered by way of eyewitnesses. Blessed, Thomas, are those who will not have seen this, but through your testimony will know this is true. Direct evidence. That's what that testimony is. We have to make a better effort to give young people the evidence for why God exists, which is what your book's about right now, and why Christianity is true. And that's really what we're trying to do in these kinds of works. Well, and, and again, I want to say that you, you can't force people to believe, uh, which is why I love America, because at its core, we have religious liberty. The idea is that, look, if it's true, somehow it has to stand on its own or we have to uh, encourage people to think about it. But you cannot force someone to believe. But if you're unwilling to look at the evidence, uh, if you're unwilling to look through Galileo's telescope, I suspect you have a bias. And so I want to say to people, um, I really do dare you to look at the evidence with an open mind. There are many books, not just my new book and Jay Warner Wallace's new book, uh, but you could start there and see what books we've read. But the evidence is overwhelming. It's stunning. It's so stunning that I myself was stunned by how stunning it was. When I wrote my book, I said, I cannot believe I didn't know this. I can't believe nobody seems to know this. It, it's almost, I think we're just living in an unprecedentedly exciting time in history, honestly, that it's possible for us to know these things. You know, there are no cold case detectives, you know, in the 18th century. There's something about where we are now that is enabling us. And I think God's doing it for, for you know, various strange purposes, because in some ways the world's gotten darker. Uh, in some ways, uh, you know, science is more advanced. We're, we're so many things. We can do so many things. I can talk to you, you know, via Skype on this program. We can. So there's a lot here, but honestly, I, I think the big news is we're living in very exciting times. And if you're interested in really knowing, is there a God who created the universe, who loves you and who has a plan for your life? Like, really? I'm here to tell you, and Jay Warner's here to tell you, yes, you can actually know that. It is true. We know it to be true. And we want you to follow uh, what we followed to get there. Jay Warner Wallace, congratulations on an important book, Person of Interest. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me, Eric. I really appreciate you. Jay Warner Wallace is a cold case homicide detective who's been investigating cold case murders in Los Angeles County for over a decade. His work has been featured on Fox News, Dateline, and Court TV. Now, we join him as he applies his investigative skills to making a case for Christianity. Thanks for joining us at Cold Case Christianity. I'm Jay Warner Wallace. 
Today we're going to be talking about an aspect of culture that Jesus has had a huge impact on. This is from my new book, Person of Interest. Right In this book, what I'm trying to do is to show you an approach toward examining the case for Jesus that I don't think really anybody else has done much of. And that is to look at the case for Jesus as if it was a no-body murder or a no-body missing persons case. That's where somebody kills a spouse and then claims that she ran off when in fact he, he murdered her and there's no evidence in the crime scene. We don't even work it as a homicide for the first several years. And then sure enough, once we open the case as a homicide, we have no evidence in the crime scene to return to. So how do you make a case when you have no evidence in a crime scene? Well, you, you trace the fuse that, that led up to that explosive moment when something terrible happened, and then you examine the fallout of that blast and the blast radius. It's fuse and fallout, and I decided to take a look at the person of Jesus in the same way. If we had no evidence from the New Testament at all, if in fact we simply rejected even looking at the New Testament for evidence, what would we know about Jesus from simply the fuse and fallout of history? Well, on today's episode of our, our NRB TV show and our YouTube channel, we're going to be looking at the evidence in the fallout in an unusual area, the area of art. Now, what I'm trying to do here in every aspect of the fallout is not just to show that Jesus had a big impact, because clearly Jesus had a big impact on a lot of things, and Jesus and his followers impacted history in huge ways. But I'm looking at those areas of culture in the fallout, in which you can look both for the kind of impact that Jesus had, plus try to reconstruct the story of Jesus from the details, from the fingerprints that are left in that impact. In other words, I'm not just looking at some aspect of culture that Jesus impacted, but I'm looking at those aspects of culture where we can actually mine out and reconstruct the story of Jesus, even if we had no New Testament. And I think you'll be interested to see how art is one of those aspects, both huge impact and he left his fingerprints in the lives of artists and in the lives of the art they created that allows us to reconstruct the story of Jesus whole cloth, even if you don't have anything in the New Testament. You might afterwards be scratching your head and asking the question, why is it that this guy in ancient history had this kind of inspiring effect on this aspect of culture, so much so that the details of his life are still readily available to us? I think that's the kind of the, the approach here. So we're going to start. This is an episode of Hope One, which is Frank Turek's wonderful uh, show on his YouTube channel. And Frank Turek has cross-examined also at the uh, NRB TV uh, network. So you probably are familiar with Frank's work. So what I'm going to... Uh, this is a, a live uh, YouTube presentation we did. So the sound quality in this to me is, is okay. Uh, I, I think that visually it's, it's really solid. So I want you to take a look at it. And just please bear with me as the sound quality is maybe a little less than you would expect from a, a microphone that's typically either dedicated to podcasting or dedicated to broadcasting. Remember, this had to go through the internet in order to be seen by people at Hope One. So that's the only caveat here, but I think the rest of it will be very, very informative for you. And I hope you will take a look and just recognize for yourself, look, when we make a case for Jesus, we often will make the case from an experience in our own life, which is good. Um, but we want to do more than that. 
Because even uh, people who aren't Christians will have some experience they'll tell you about in their own life that they think confirms for them that their religious worldview is true. We actually could do more than that. There's more than enough evidence. Again, I wrote Cold Case Christianity to demonstrate that there's evidence in the crime scene of the Gospels that demonstrates they are reliable accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In person of interest, we're talking about the evidence that's outside the crime scene of the New Testament, to be able to make the same kind of case. Together, inside and outside, that's a powerful case. So listen uh, and take out take a, uh, just a watch of this uh, next episode here, because we're going to be talking now about the impact that Jesus had on the visual arts. I want right. to show you the powerful way in which Jesus has impacted the world. So I'm just going to over to a, a presentation here real quick with Jorge, and we're just going to jump right in, all right? So uh, if you think about just in terms of the way that um, it, that that this has uh, kind of exploded on the scene, there's an impact that Jesus makes on the world. His arrival is, does not go unnoticed. In fact, I would argue that there are, are are four ways that Jesus changed everything as a fallout. Um, imagine if a bomb was to explode <laughs> at the turn of this millenniums. And, and you would have a, a, a fallout from that explosion known as Jesus of Nazareth. When he came on the scene, he created a tidal wave of inspiration and a tidal wave of change. Now, I think you'll see this in four categories. Uh, and the fallout, by the way, explains who Jesus is. I think you'll see this, number one, in the fact that so much is written about Jesus after the fact. You'll also see that so much inspiration, that's what we're going to talk about today, you'll also see that education and science is forever changed by the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth, and that every other worldview, theistic worldview, ends up bending its knee to Jesus of Nazareth as well. But all we're going to do today is just talk about this one section here, which is imagination. Uh, because this is where I think we can get, get some hope. Uh, you, you, I want to inspire you to, during this pandemic time, to, to be hopeful and to, um, to, to be creative. I see this all the time right now. I was watching a video yesterday of a young lady who is, uh, owns a hairstylist shop, and, and she's a hairstylist, and, and she's trying to be creative about how to reopen given her uh, conditions there in her state. And I'm watching how she's got people coming in and what they have to do to get in and how she's serving them. And I'm thinking, man, this is really creative. Uh, we, we can't help but be creative. And, uh, and, and our ingenuity is exercised during times of trial. And that gives me hope that we are still created in the image of God, reflecting his beauty and his imagination. So let me jump back and show you. If you look at the first century, right? You will see, and let's just kind of imagine a time clock here, and we'll put Jesus at the center of it. If you imagine through the course of time over the centuries, in the earliest days, there weren't a lot of people in the Christian faith to begin with. It started very, very small, as you know. So without a large population and without the kind of position, like Judaism at least had a position in the empire, even though it wasn't a great position, other worldviews, religious worldviews had a position, but the Christians didn't. They also lacked property. These people didn't own like temples and, and places of worship yet. And they also lacked patronage. There wasn't anybody who was like big donors who were coming in and saying, hey, we will sponsor your creative works. And, and finally, they lacked uh, well permission. They didn't have permission from the government to even really claim that Jesus was the only God. And finally, they didn't have the protection so that whatever they would create wouldn't be destroyed. Imagine trying to create art 
trying to create inspiration, being inspired to create art in this environment. We know that this is the generation that was persecuted for their beliefs. As a matter of fact, we know this historically because we can read it on the pages of history. Tacitus tells us that they were accused and executed. Suetonius says they were punished. Uh, and, and Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Younger uh, will talk about, hey, if they didn't uh, bend their knee to the Roman gods and claim them as their own, they would be either punished or persecuted if they persisted. It's in this context that we see tons of people dying for what they believed including all of these kind of well-known Christians over the course of history. That's why we call this the age of Christian martyrdom. It's under these emperors that Christians consistently were persecuted. Some were executed. I would think in this kind of an environment, you know what I would expect in terms of art? Uh, not much. I would expect there to be very little in an age when you don't have a lot of people to begin with, not any position within the empire, you don't have any property to paint on or to sculpt with, you don't have any patronage, permission, or protection. Yet, what do we see? I'm going to show you what we see, how creative we are as Christians, even under persecution. If you look at just the earliest centuries of the Christian world, uh, Christian, of Christianity, what you're going to see in the earliest centuries is a robust representation of Christian art. This is just some of it you'll see, all before Christianity is uh, made the, the, the religion of the empire. I'm surprised to find anything, yet you will find interesting things about Jesus early in history, through the earliest ages. Now, now, why would that be the case? I think you see this. Like, why would people uh, be inspired to paint, etch, draw Jesus, given that they had to do it in the catacombs, in places where it was secret. You see most of the earliest artwork uh, created by Christians is in catacombs. But why would they, why would they still, knowing this could cost them, that they find this artwork, it's going to cost them something, why would they still persist to do it? Well, I'll show you. I think part of it is you'll see it right here in the statements of people like Justin Martyr, who says, hey, you can kill us, but you can't really do us any real harm. Let's just go to the Dark Ages. What do you see? You see an explosion. The Dark Ages were not dark from a Christian art perspective. They weren't. They were robustly full and complete with images. These are the most famous images that I'm bringing to you from just the Dark Ages. And, and if you go one more step to the Renaissance, of course, you have an explosion of art driven because now by this time you have position you have property you have patronage you have um, protection and permission so now we see an explosion now we actually have walls and churches to adorn now the reason why I'm, I'm sharing this with you is because i became interested in this because before i became a cold case detective and most of you know my work I work as a cold case detective in los angeles that's how i became a christian studying the evidence for christianity like a cold case detective would do uh, but before I became a detective, I, my background is in design, my bachelor's degree, and then my master's degree is in architecture. So I'm very interested in the history of art and architecture. Also, I was a musician for a number of years, and, and, and we played on worship teams, all that stuff. This stuff, uh, I, I find the, the creative aspect of who we are, 
I have always tried to incorporate into my case making, which is why I try to make this visual for you. Let's go back. This is the Renaissance, okay? A lot of stuff going on. But even in the modern era in which you I think is pretty secular, right? And you might think, well, you know, that what's, what's really happening in the modern era? Is anything happening in the modern era? Yeah. As a matter of fact, a ton is happening in the modern era. It's not as though, even though we're in a secular environment, it's not as though this in, uh, impacts um, the, the a number of people who are painting about Jesus. And by the way, you might think, oh, well, Jim, you're just bringing up the history of Western art. Well, you know, there's like, let me show you. Actually, uh, if you have an A to Z of all of the countries on the world, in the world, you will see that Jesus is painted in all of them A to Z. Now, what's interesting about that is as you look at this collection of art, you will see that it is very different culturally one item to the next. In other words, the styles of art, the way they're painted, the materials they're using, the representations of Jesus are contextualized for every country. So here's everything from Argentina to Zimbabwe. And you will see that Jesus is represented more than any other figure who ever lived. In every epic period of history, of every epic period of Christian, of, of, of art history, and in every country in which art is being done, that's a huge impact. I, I mean, I think about that for a second. He is the most inspirational figure, really, not in, in the world, in the entire world, not just in the West, in the world. And, and, and think about this. There's a lot of other um, deities that people worship and, and were actually worshipped both before and after Jesus. Well, guess what? None of these are as represented in art in any context as Jesus. Jesus captures all of it. Now, here's what's really interesting about it. It's not just that he inspires all of us to paint him. It's that if you, you can actually reconstruct the story of Jesus. So here, for example, is the, the Gospel of Mark. And what I did is I went through the Gospel of Mark and I identified every major significant uh, story. I've got them all on the screen here. You can barely see them, but this is every from the baptism of Jesus all the way down to the resurrection of Jesus along the way. You know when he when he is uh, when John is beheaded, when when Jesus feeds the five thousand, when he walks up. I just went line by line and I identified what are the chap what are the chapters and episodes that are represented in the Gospel of Mark. Well, I don't know if you realize this or not, but you can go back if you lost the Gospel of Mark if you didn't have any New Testament at all. What would you know about Jesus? Well, if you return to just the art of the ancient period and the Dark Ages, the earliest forms of Christian art, you could reconstruct the entire Gospel of Mark just from art. And that's exactly what I did here. So if you didn't know, you didn't have the Gospels, you, you, or you said, I don't trust, well, I, I don't want to listen, don't use the New Testament. I, uh, imagine you don't have a New Testament. Imagine somehow it was completely destroyed. Well, you would everything that you know in the Gospel of Mark just from studying the art that was produced globally during the ancient period and during the Dark Ages. You're not going to be able to erase the figure of Jesus because he's had that kind of impact on the arts. Uh, that's quite, I got a question for you. Let me, let me show it to you. Here's, I think, an important question. Okay, um, and this is, I think, fair to ask. Who, what, what, what is in the entire history of humans 
lived and only uh, had a public ministry for just three short years, yet ends up inspiring and being so well documented. What what living human has inspired so many artists and craftsmen in just three years? Now, look, there's all kinds of people of, with one name uh, titles in the first century. Here's a bunch of them, right? You know, none of these people inspired this kind of art. And these are people who are emperors and people in, in important positions. These are philosophers and poets and writers. All of these people combined don't have this kind of impact on the arts, this kind of impact on, on uh, literature, this kind of impact on music. One person has this kind of impact. Now, let me just go a little step further with it because I love geeked out by the arts. I'm going to show you a couple things here. Let's go back to our, our timeline now, okay? I want you to know that in every art genre, if you study the history of art, there are genres of art from ancient through medieval. Then there's all the way to Impressionism and Post-Impressionism. You can go all the way to Abstract and Dadaism and, pre and Precisionism and Surrealism. These are the major categories of art. If you just Google them. And you say, hey, Google, what are the, who are the top three artists in this particular uh, category of, of art history? Pull them up. Then go through their art catalog. Here's what you're going to discover is that every uh, genre is dominated by artists who have painted Jesus. And many of these were not even Christians. They were inspired by the story of Jesus. These are the top people in every genre. If you're thinking about art, you'll recognize some of these names. They all drew. They all painted. They all did art related to Jesus. Let me show you another thing. It's it's not just the the um, the art genres. It's that if you look at every innovative style, every epic period, every historic era in which people work, they're going to have be painting Jesus. As a matter of fact, look at the masters here. Okay, these are the masters we're talking about, the people who are generally recognized. Look, you might say, well, Jim, I don't know anything about art, and I don't know who the masters of art are. Well, I'll bet you this. You know enough about art to recognize somebody on this list. Look at this list. There's somebody on here that you're going to say, okay, I do recognize that. I know Pablo Picasso. I've heard of Picasso. I've heard of Vincent van Gogh. I've heard of, you know, uh, let's say, I don't know, Caravaggio. I've heard of some of these people. Well, this is the top, like, this is like the, the, the inspirational list of artists over the years. Okay, and there's somebody in this list that you're going to recognize. These are the, like, the biggest names on the list, right? If nothing else, you recognize these folks because these are the teenage ninja mutant turtles, right? And this is the Donatello, Leonardo, Michelangelo, and Raphael. By the way, they were all named after artists. If you don't know, for example, the purple one is Donatello, the uh, blue one is Leonardo, and the orange one is Michelangelo, and the red one is Raphael just so you know who your teenage mutant ninja turtles are but my point is this list right here all of these folks were absolutely influenced they were interested in jesus they were infatuated with him informed by him and inspired by him and they painted him now what's interesting about this is if you were to go back and look at other theistic worldviews like say buddhism now if i was to show you all this buddha art I think you might be inclined to say, well, this all came out of the same place because Buddhism, for whatever reason, in the arts, the artists end up drawing Buddha in almost the exact same kind of colorful way. He's modeled the same way. It's very, very rigid. I, I, you could look at that and almost think it all came from the same country, even though it didn't. It came from all over the world. He just ends up looking very much the same no matter where he is sculpted, no matter where he is painted. But that is not true for Jesus. Uh, Jesus, uh, Christianity is... is open-handed 
it, it is not a, a rules based. It's not restrictive. What it does is it opens up creativity and, and in different places in the world. Jesus looks very different because the, in the context of that artistic genre or that artistic region, he still inspires, but he doesn't limit. Does that make sense? He inspires, but he doesn't limit. And that's what's so cool about Jesus. He inspired art, not just in the West, but he inspired the progress of art in the entire world, regardless of genre. Coming this fall, join me, Jay Warner Wallace, on a 10-part journey based on my book, Person of Interest. We'll investigate a real homicide together, and we'll also examine the unparalleled impact Jesus had on human history. We'll trace the fuse that burned toward the disappearance of Tammy Hayes, then sift through the fallout that eventually implicated her husband. In a similar way, we'll examine the historical views that burned toward the appearance of Jesus and marvel at the fallout and unexpected impact Jesus had on our world. Finally, we'll ask the critical question, does Jesus still matter in a world that's increasingly skeptical of the Bible? Let's discover if Jesus is history's true person of interest. Do you get a sense that censorship is rising? If we simply just reiterate the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth, there's a good chance someone in the culture is gonna see that as intolerant. I'm Jay Warner Wallace, cold case detective and Christian case maker. If you're concerned like I am about being deplatformed, about being canceled by a culture that has control over your mechanisms to interact with each other, and that's what it is with social media, then please join us at a private community we are building at coldcasechristianity.com. And I want you to join us if you're interested in being mentored, in being discipled in a way that'll help you become a better Christian case maker. It's a platform where you can know, is the Bible true and does it matter? Those two things will change your life. Join us at coldcasechristianity.com. You won't regret it. Jim, you also talk about thinking critically as well. This generation hasn't really been challenged to think critically about what they believe. Yeah, one of the things we talk about for parents who are watching, and this is what I hope is encouraging for both of us, is you don't have to be close to the age of Gen Zs in order to have an impact on Gen Z. And I'm 58, and I, my kids are all adults. But I, I can tell you, we still work with a lot of high schoolers as part of what we do because we are engaging this. We are concerned about this generation. We know that as a family, the Christian family, we have an important job as parents and all of us are sharing this job as parents. If I can just give you one tip that I think will help parents, it's simply to do this. We are, we've seen it a lot. We, we have a tendency to say what is true to our kids, to make proclamations about what is true. What we've shifted toward is providing two whys for every one what right, yeah. so in other words we would say okay what is true about the Bible what is true about Jesus what is true about God what is true about what God requires of us what how we should live those are all what's I think young people want to know okay well two why's for that well, why is that true can you give me some basis for your argument some some evidence that might support why because there's tons of counterclaims and those claims are supported allegedly by scientific evidence whatever I need to know is this claim you're making from the Christian perspective supported by any evidence mm -hmm. two is okay so you've got a claim and now you've told me why you think it's true why should I care 
The second why is what I think animates passion in young people, is how does this apply to me? Why, why should I care? So what we've, I've tried to do, even with youth pastors as recently as last week, talking about their curriculum, it's always a lot of what, what, what proclamations. We need to shift toward the two whys for every what. And don't wait till the end to do this. Do this with every breath. If you're making the what claim, let's make the two whys right there. So don't wait till you know, the next month to do that, because by the time you get to next month, your kids have already checked out. Okay, yeah, I hope that uh, helped you to see that the, the impact that Jesus had is not just the impact on Western art, it's the impact on global art. Nobody had the kind of impact on the arts. No one has been painted, sculpted, etched, drawn, sketched uh, more than Jesus of Nazareth. He has inspired artists globally. And as we sh showed you just a minute ago, uh, the, the, um, his person is adaptable because Jesus, God comes to us, uh, humans created in his image. All of us, regardless of culture, are still humans created in the image of God. Why would you be surprised then that when he really shows up in history, he's the kind of deity, the kind of being that adapts so easily to every aspect of human culture since all of us as humans are equally uh, imaged uh, in, in God's image. We are equally designed in God's image. That's why uh, Jesus adapts to so many different cultures and is drawn so uh, differently, painted so differently, etched and sculpted so differently than other uh, 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 deities like, for example, the Buddha we showed you. All right, so that being said, I, I wanted to just help you to see how this kind of case can be um, can be um, uh, used to, to help you discuss the gospel with your friends. Look, I came out of the arts first, so I became a detective only after being an architect. And my bachelor's degree was in the design. In design, so you might think, well, look, you know, what kind of people can I reach with the evidence for Jesus? Well, it turns out, in person of interest, uh, what I'm trying to demonstrate is there, there are so many divergent, so many different aspects of um, diverse aspects of culture that Jesus impacted, that if you know somebody who's got a certain inclination on one set of interests or another, I'll bet you that that set of interests that that, that person is engaged in or uh, chases as a regular part of his, his or her routine has been deeply impacted by Jesus and his followers. As a matter of fact, the five things that I would have said were most important to me as an atheist, which would have been the arts, visual arts, music, literature, education, science, all five of those have been deeply impacted by Jesus and his fingerprints are all over them. So if you've got someone in your life who is engaged in or just interested in one of those five areas of culture, you can actually now make a case just from the impact that Jesus and his followers have had in that area that he or she so reveres. Now, um, last thing, to learn more about this book, please visit our website at personofinterestbook.com because you're gonna see we've got a great package of bonus materials so that now that you're learning this case, you will be able to teach it to others. That you'll be able to teach it just from the free materials we're gonna send you if you purchase the book and post a review pretty simple. You purchase the book and post a review. We're going to send you a 525 uh, slide PowerPoint that's animated with about 3,000 images that are layered. We're going to send you uh, 90 Bible inserts you can use in your class, eight videos that describe how to use this material or just show you examples of us teaching the material, and finally a video to help you learn how to teach it yourself. All of that's available at personofinterestbook.com. All right, that's it for this week. I'll see you next week right here at Cold Case Christianity. To hear more from Jay Warner Wallace, please visit Cold Case Christianity. 
youtube.com. For more information on this week's topic, visit youtube.com slash coldcasechristianity with Jay Warner Wallace. Thank you for joining us on this Cold Case Christianity broadcast.